Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Wax On, Wax Off. Now, there are some expressions in popular culture that have caught on to such a degree that pretty much everybody has heard of them, and pretty much everybody can identify where it comes from. The expression, Wax On, Wax Off, comes from a 1980s movie titled, can you guess it? Of course you can. It's the Karate Kid. I was busy home sheltering this past weekend. By the way, today is Thursday, April 16th, 2020. And this past weekend, I was busy sheltering at home and clicking through channels on the TV and what should be playing but the Karate Kid, the original version. Yes, the one with Ralph Macchio and Pat Morita, or as we would say it in Japanese, Pat Morita. And I caught it at the very beginning, and I sat down, and I watched the whole thing through, even with the commercials. It had been decades since I had seen that movie. I saw it originally in the theaters when it came out in the 1980s, and I had forgotten what a great movie it really is. So many great moments, so many great lines. From Catching Flies with Chopsticks, to The Cobra Kai, to Sweep the Leg, to No Mercy. But the most famous expression to come from that movie has got to be, wax on, wax off. And you remember that Mr. Miyagi was teaching Daniel-san about about karate. And Daniel had only a very short time in order to prepare himself for the karate tournament. So Mr. Miyagi has Daniel-san wax all of the junk cars in Mr. Miyagi's yard. And there were about seven or ten of those cars. And he had to go and wax on and move his right hand in a small circle to the right and then wax on moving his left hand in a small circle to the left. Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And only quite a bit later did Daniel-san find out that what Mr. Miyagi was teaching him was not actually how to wax his cars, but teaching him the fundamentals of blocking in karate. And by the end of this particular exercise, Daniel-san has waxed all the cars in Mr. Miyagi's yard to an absolutely beautiful shine. And then, of course, Mr. Miyagi has him paint the fence and sand the deck and a whole lot of other things in order to develop and train into him these certain movements, which will later be used in karate. But after Daniel-san has waxed all of his cars to a beautiful shine, Mr. Miyagi now gives to Daniel-san his choice of any of the cars. He's going to make a gift of any of the cars that Daniel-san wants. And that scene is one of many wonderful scenes in this movie. Well, I'm going to come back to the reason why it is that I have named this episode Wax On, Wax Off in a few minutes. But first off, I have a few announcements to make. Number one, this is the 150th episode of Radio Free Mormon, and I think that we need to have a bit of a celebration. I brought in a marching band, and I want to ask them to play the fight song for my alma mater, the University of Texas at Austin, in commemoration of this historic event. Strike up the band, guys. Okay, enough of that. But wasn't that a great fight song? Wasn't that a great way to celebrate the 150th episode 
of Radio Free Mormon. And you know, when I think of the number 150, I have to also think of the sesquicentennial because the 150th anniversary of something is called a sesquicentennial. The 200th year is called the bicentennial. That one's pretty easy to remember. That one's pretty easy to say. But a sesquicentennial is 150 years. And the reason that I and every member of the church who was alive in 1980 knew that expression sesquicentennial was because 1980 was the sesquicentennial of the LDS Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Having been organized officially in 1830, 1980 was the sesquicentennial. And for the April General Conference of 1980, in honor and celebration of the sesquicentennial, there were a number of things that the church did to make General Conference special, one of which was that they actually broadcast a session of General Conference live from the Whitmer home in New York. More recently, we have celebrated a bicentennial, not the bicentennial of the organization of the church, that will have to wait another 10 years, but rather the bicentennial celebration of the first vision of Joseph Smith. And that was celebrated in this last general conference in April of 2020. And one of the big surprises that President Nelson had been hinting at was going to come in this general conference was a proclamation which he unveiled during the course of general conference. There is a new proclamation to the world. And this proclamation is a proclamation on the restoration. And technically, that's the shortened version of the title. It actually has a much longer title when you look at it on the church website. The full title is The Restoration of the Fullness of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, colon, A Bicentennial Proclamation to the World. Now, once again, I'm not going to go into a full in-depth analysis of this proclamation on this program. I'm saving that for a future program. I have other fish to fry tonight. But I will note as part of the historical background to this new proclamation provided by the LDS Church on its website, it notes that this is the sixth proclamation issued by the Church. The others were made in 1841, to the saints only, 1845, 1865, 1980, and 1995. Now, the 1995 proclamation we all know is the proclamation on the family, but the one before that in 1980 that was a proclamation that was made as part of the sesquicentennial celebration that I've been telling you about. And Spencer Kimball, who was the president of the church at the time, unveiled a proclamation in 1980, April General Conference of that year. And the thing that surprised me when I actually took the time to look at it is that really the 1980 proclamation is a proclamation about the restoration of the gospel. And it covers pretty much all the basic elements that the new proclamation covers. The first vision... Yes, it's mentioned in the 1980 proclamation. The restoration of the Aaronic priesthood? Check, it's there too. The restoration of the Melchizedek priesthood? Yep, that's in the 1980 proclamation. The miraculous translation of the Book of Mormon? Yep, that's there too. What we ended up with, much to my surprise, was not really a new proclamation given to the world recently by President Nelson, but instead it ends up just being a warmed over version of the 1980 proclamation from 40 years before. So really, the two big surprises that we were all on tenterhooks waiting for in this recent conference, and that President Nelson had primed us to expect, ended up being a warmed-over proclamation about the Restoration and a new church logo. I feel like Charlie Brown going trick-or-treating with the rest of the Peanuts kids. I got a rock. TRT! I got a chocolate bar. I got a quarter. I got five pieces of candy. What did you get, Charlie Brown? I got a rock. And you know, something that's amazing about the fact that this is the 150th episode of Radio Free Mormon is, first off, I can't believe it's been 150 episodes, can you? 
Second is that this podcast premiered in October of 2016, and it took three years to get to the first 100 episodes. That milestone was reached back in November of last year, in November of 2019. So actually, a little bit more than three years it took to the 100th episode of Radio Free Mormon. But since November of 2019, it has now been five months, and we are at the 150th episode. So it took three years to do 100 episodes, and now in the past five months, another 50 episodes have been added to the Radio Free Mormon canon. Obviously, we're picking up speed. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I am doing my best during this coronavirus shutdown to produce an episode of this podcast every weekday to try and do my bit to help those who are sheltering at home and not able to go to work and not able to do all the things that they would normally be doing during the day. It is my hope that by cranking up the production of Radio Free Mormon, it is helping my listeners weather the storm in one way or another. Now, as you know, it takes a great deal of work to produce these podcasts. I have committed myself to trying to get out one podcast every weekday, and it is requiring a great deal of effort on my part. I'm having a great time doing it. Don't get me wrong. I am having a great time doing this. Now, I want to thank everybody out there who has contributed to this program. I know there are many of you, and I want to extend a sincere Radio Free Mormon thank you from my heart for your donations. For those of you who have not donated yet, and you know who you are, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now and make a monthly contribution. $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. Now a couple of other announcements before we get to tonight's episode. The first is that I had a birthday last month and I received a very special present here in my underground bunker. It was a birthday present sent by a listener to this program, and I will just give his initials as RF. His name actually came on the card, but I'm not positive that he wants me to identify him by his full name, so I will just give his initials of RF, and he sent me a lovely birthday gift courtesy of Harry and David. I want to thank you, RF, for that birthday present, and I can tell you that that present has long since been consumed by yours truly, and it was delicious. I also want to read to you an email that I received from a listener regarding a podcast that I had made some time back. And in that podcast, I talked about being on my mission in Japan and that Japanese member of the church who was a friend of mine who confided in me that he recognized and realized that he was not as faithful or as righteous as I was in the pre-mortal existence. And that's why he was born Japanese and I was born American. You may remember that story. Well, when I was telling that story, I wasn't sure exactly why it was that he had gotten that idea or how that idea had gotten into his head, except for it being an extrapolation of the doctrine of the church related to the priesthood ban on blacks. But of course, he's not black, he's Japanese. Why would he think that? Well, this is where this email from a listener comes in. And this listener has the initials GL. Here's what GL writes, and here's the added information he gives to me, which clears up this question. Because actually, this very doctrine about Japanese not being as righteous as white Americans was taught by an apostle of the LDS Church. And this apostle was none other than Mark E. Peterson, ironically one of the general authorities who was present at the dedication of the Tokyo Temple in October of 1980 and whose hand I shook as I've related in a prior podcast. Here's how the email goes. Dear RFM, 
A couple of podcasts ago, you mentioned an elder you served with in Japan. Okay, now technically, this wasn't an elder I served with in Japan. I'm sure he was an elder, but he was a member of the church there. Nevertheless, who wished he had been born in America like you and that he was less than or felt cursed or something to that effect. You said you had never heard of such a thing. Well, here's the quote from none other than Mark E. Peterson. By the way, I love every episode you post. Well, thank you for that, GL. Now, here's the quote from Mark E. Peterson. Let us consider the great mercy of God for a moment. A Chinese born in China with a dark skin. So even Chinese people have dark skins from Mark E. Peterson's point of view. A Chinese born in China with a dark skin and with all the handicaps of that race seem to have little opportunity. But think of the mercy of God to Chinese people who are willing to accept the gospel in spite of whatever they might have done in the pre-existence to justify being born over there as Chinamen. No, I'm not making this up. This is actually what he says. In spite of whatever they might have done in the pre-existence to justify being born over there as Chinamen, if they now in this life accept the gospel and live it the rest of their lives, they can have the priesthood. So at least the Chinamen can have the priesthood. The blacks couldn't have the priesthood, even if they did accept the gospel and live it the rest of their lives. So Chinamen are apparently a step up from black people, according to Marquis Peterson, but they're really not quite up to snuff. Not as good as the white people are, because the quote goes on. If they now in this life accept the gospel and live it the rest of their lives, they can have the priesthood, go to the temple, and receive endowments and sealings. And that means they can have exaltation. Isn't the mercy of God marvelous? Yeah, that's actually what he says. Isn't the mercy of God marvelous? Oh, wow. I just looked up this quote on the internet, and apparently this comes from an address that Marky e. Peterson gave at BYU delivered to the Convention of Teachers of Religion at the college level, Brigham Young University, on August 27, 1954. So this was not in general conference, and there's no way I'm going to be able to get the audio from this speech to play it for you. And there are some incredible other excerpts from this same talk. One of these is as follows. Is there a reason, then, why the type of birth we receive in this life is not a reflection of our worthiness or lack of it in the pre-existent life? He doesn't talk about Japanese specifically, but he definitely does talk about Chinese. Oh, and he talks about the people in India as well. Let me read this quote because it really cements exactly what it is he's getting at there. And this is where a leader of the church, an apostle, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints taught openly that the reason that people on this earth are born into different cultures and climates and with different colored skin is a reflection of their valiance in the pre-mortal existence. Here's another quote from the same talk. Is there a reason then why the type of birth we receive in this life is not a reflection of our worthiness or lack of it in the pre-existent life? Can we account in any other way for the birth of some of the children of God in darkest Africa? or in flood-ridden China, or among the starving hordes of India, while some of the rest of us are born here in the United States. We cannot escape the conclusion that because of performance in our pre-existence, some of us are born as Chinese, some as Japanese. There's Japanese right there in the talk. He does say Japanese specifically. Some of us are born as Chinese, some as Japanese, some as Indians, some as Negroes, some as da -da -da, Americans, some as Latter-day Saints, which is the best of all, obviously. These are rewards, he goes on. These are rewards and punishments, fully in harmony with his established policy that his is capitalized as with God's established policy in dealing with sinners and saints, rewarding all according 
to their deeds. So it is very obvious now where it was that my Japanese friend came up with the idea that he was not as good as Americans because of where he was born and he must have been less worthy in the pre-mortal existence than I was. So he came by this feeling honestly. It is not something that he appears to have made up. It is something that was taught by the leaders of the church. And even though Marky Peterson in 1954 says, we cannot escape the conclusion that these things are true, apparently the current leadership of the church can escape that conclusion and specifically in the church essay has disavowed and repudiated these types of theories taught by Marky Peterson in 1954. And I would say that's a good thing. So thank you for pointing out to me that quote from this talk, GL, I appreciate your email and I appreciate your kind words of support. Okay, one other comment I want to make before going on with tonight's podcast. And this has to do with the reviews I've been receiving on my Facebook page. Yes, a couple of months ago, I started my Radio Free Mormon Facebook page. I have a number of followers now. And if you would like to be a follower of the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page, please go there now. And while you're there, you can also leave a review. Now, I have received quite a number of reviews. Overall, they've been really good reviews, five-star reviews, and I'd like to read a couple of those for you. And the reason I want to read these reviews is because I received a review yesterday, which was not good. It was a zero-star review, and I want to talk about that too, just a little bit before I get on to tonight's podcast. David Wills writes, insightful analysis and witty presentation of interesting topics. Megan Hayes writes, absolutely my favorite podcast for in-depth, cited, and accurate information about the Mormon church and its history. Miles Germer, or Germer, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that name, Miles, possibly the best podcast about Mormonism. I have listened to virtually every episode and it has changed my life for the better. RFM explains the changes in doctrine with a spellbinding approach that leaves no stone unturned, especially seer stones. <laughs> nice one, Miles. I like that joke. Kate Nell Johnson writes, extremely well-researched history and insight into the Mormon church. James Whitaker writes, Perspective on issues, policies, and practices that I never doubted until I doubted. And I will never doubt the church is not true. That's a clever turn of phrase from James Whitaker. Natalie Berry writes, informative and entertaining. Curtis Jurgensen writes, the most interesting podcast I listen to. Five stars. Logan Tatham writes, RFM's daily episodes keep me going during the lockdown. I love how he tries to present several sides when he can, and I love his hearty laugh. Ha 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 Thank you, Logan Tatham. N.A. Johnson writes, if you are interested in Mormonism, I recommend listening to every single episode of Radio Free Mormon. Bill Reel and RFM deliver the best content in a way that makes sense, even if you know nothing about Mormonism. Enjoy. Matthew Turner writes, engaging and insightful commentary on LDS history and current events. Well, I want to thank each and every one of you for those wonderful reviews. I appreciate the kind words. But that's why I was surprised to find a review that went up yesterday on my Facebook page, which had a diametrically opposed point of view. This review was posted by a fellow named Riaz Qureshi. And I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name either. I apologize if I am. But what he did was he didn't really leave a review. Instead, he just left a scripture from Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, which states how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And then he helpfully provides 
the citation of Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. That's all he says. But it did seem to me like this was not a really favorable review like the rest of them. I mean, he is likening me to Lucifer and the zero stars rating he gave me was also a hint. And I wondered, who on earth is this guy? And why on earth would he have such a negative view of my podcast? Now, certainly there's a lot of people out there who would have a negative view of my podcast, but why post that negative view just by means of a passage of scripture? And indeed, I looked at this passage of scripture, which does not appear to be from the King James Version. I could tell that because the language was somewhat modernized. It says, you who weaken the nations, for you have said, instead of the yees and the thous that we are accustomed to, in the King James Version. So I thought this is probably not a member of the church, but I posted a comment in response to this and I said, cool, now tell me what you really think. And then a laughing face emoji. And Riaz got back to me with this fascinating and telling comment. His comment back was, Mormonism is satanic, LOL. That's my exact opinion based on that scripture. No offense, that's just the Bible. (laughs) So incredibly, Riaz appears to be a fundamental born-again Christian of some sort who hates all things Mormon because Satan. And while going through Facebook one day, he lands upon a Facebook page for a podcast called Radio Free Mormon. Well, it has the name Mormon in it, so it must be pro-Mormon. It must be advocating for the position that the LDS church is true. And therefore, he posts a negative review about it. So what this tells me is, number one, if Riaz ever listen to this program, he would know that that's not what this program is about. Even though it has the word Mormon in the title, Radio Free Mormon is not something that is out there every day extolling the merits and the virtues of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So what that tells me is, if he's going to post a negative review on Radio Free Mormon because he thinks it's pro-Mormon, he has never listened to the podcast. He's just going to post a negative review out there on any podcast that has the word Mormon in it, apparently. And I feel quite confident that Riaz is never going to hear me make this comment about his review because, hey, he never listens to the podcast. (laughs) What a maroon. So I want to thank everybody who has left a review, both those of you who have left positive five-star reviews, and I even want to thank Riaz for leaving his review. All opinions are welcome here. Even though he did take my five-star average and bring it down to 4.4 with that one stupid review of his, which wasn't really a review. It was just a scripture, a scripture which I had committed to memory before I went on my mission, by the way, which is why I could tell just from looking at it that it was not quoting the King James Version. But even at Radio Free Mormon, there must be opposition in all things. And not only that, at Radio Free Mormon, we believe in the First Amendment. Please come to the Facebook page and express your opinion, whatever it may be. And now on to the subject of tonight's podcast. You will remember, even after all this time with all these announcements, I hope you will remember that the title of the podcast is Wax On, Wax Off. And right now, I'm talking about 3rd Nephi in the Book of Mormon and the visit of Jesus Christ to the Nephites. Yesterday, I talked about the first level of complexity in this account. And in it, I showed how the Sermon on the Mount from the Bible, the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, shows up in almost exactly the same form in 3 Nephi 12 through 14. But as I showed there, this isn't just filler. It doesn't just sit there like a lump without any connection to the chapters before and the chapters after. But actually, the Sermon on the Mount in 3 Nephi is quoted, echoed, and elaborated on throughout all the teachings that Jesus gives to the Nephites during his visit to the American continent, all the way up to chapter 27 of 3 Nephi. And we even have a foreshadowing of the Sermon on the Mount 
in 3rd Nephi 11. For additional details, go back to yesterday's podcast. But what I've shown here is that there is a level of complexity that was surprising to me to find in the Book of Mormon, and I was only able to look at it and discover it after I had accepted the fact, the uncomfortable fact, the fact that challenged my preconceived religious conceptions that the King James Version Sermon on the Mount should not be present in the Book of Mormon. And there is no good explanation that I can come up with that is satisfying to me that I have ever heard or read that accounts for its appearance in the Book of Mormon. It is an obvious evidence that the Book of Mormon is a modern production. And what I am likening this complexity to now is the waxing on and the waxing off on the automobiles of Mr. Miyagi that Daniel-san did in The Karate Kid. So this first layer of complexity is surprising. That's the first coat of wax. But what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to do two more coats of wax dealing with this same section of the Book of Mormon, i.e. Jesus' ministry to the Nephites, which is, of course, 3rd Nephi 11 through 27, because there are complexities upon complexities. In other words, even while there is this initial complexity of the use of the Sermon on the Mount throughout the Savior's ministry to the Nephites, there is another complexity that is built on top of that, even at the same time that that underlying complexity is going on. And I want to get to that second level of complexity now. And this has to do with the usage, not just of New Testament passages in 3rd Nephi, but Old Testament passages as well, because there are passages from both Malachi and Isaiah that are quoted in 3rd Nephi. And it is the usage of those passages from the Old Testament that I want to focus on right now. This is the second part of the three-part paper, the first part being the one I went over yesterday regarding Sermon on the Mount. Here's how this paper goes. My last article showed how three chapters from Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5-7, through are quoted at the beginning of Jesus' Nephite ministry, and thereafter incorporated into his teachings approximately 16 times, bookending these three New Testament chapters at the outset of Jesus' ministry are three Old Testament chapters at the conclusion being Isaiah 54, which is quoted pretty much verbatim from the King James Version, and we find Isaiah 54 in 3rd Nephi 22, and then Malachi chapters 3 and 4, which we find quoted in 3rd Nephi 24 and 25. So that's why I say that they're bookended. You've got the three chapters from the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Jesus' teachings to the Nephites, and then bookending his teachings, we have three chapters from the Old Testament. And then I ask the question, why these three chapters? Upon examination, it turns out that these three Old Testament chapters are no more filler material than the three New Testament chapters, but are contextualized primarily within the framework of Jesus's preceding acts and teachings. So we've got the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Jesus's teachings in 3rd Nephi, and then references to them thereafter but we have the three chapters from the Old Testament at the end of Jesus' teachings, which appear to give a framework for things that happened before the Old Testament chapters are quoted. We know Jesus was concerned the Nephites have a record demonstrating that prophecies relating to his post-resurrection appearance were fulfilled. This is why he is eager to have included the fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy that the dead would rise from their graves. That's 3 Nephi 23, 9-13. Similarly, Several passages from Malachi serve the same purpose, to show that prophecies previously given were fulfilled 
at his coming. So in other words, he's not just quoting Malachi for the sake of quoting Malachi. He's quoting Malachi because he appears to be referencing prophecies made in Malachi that Jesus himself fulfilled when he came to the Nephites. Number one, the Lord comes to his temple. Right out of the box, Malachi 3.1, which is quoted in 3 Nephi 24.1, is quoted regarding the prophecy that the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. As keen as the Nephites were on likening the scriptures unto themselves for their profit and learning, that's 1 Nephi 19.23, it is almost certain they saw the fulfillment of this prophecy from Malachi when the resurrected Lord came to his temple in Bountiful, which is recorded in 3 Nephi 11 and 1. So, in other words, Malachi prophesies that the Lord will come to his temple. Jesus comes to the temple in Bountiful at the beginning of his visit to the Nephites. And then at the end of his teachings, we have being quoted this prophecy from Malachi that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple, as if it is there in order to show that Jesus, when he appeared to the Nephites and came to the temple in Bountiful, fulfilled this prophecy from Malachi. I don't know about you, but I find this fascinating. Number two, the messenger of the covenant. In the same passage from Malachi, the Lord is described as the messenger of the covenant. Jesus' Nephite teachings are replete with references to the covenant, of which he is the messenger. For example, he says, I am he who covenanted with my people Israel. And then he also says, the covenant which I have made with my people. And that's from 3 Nephi 15, verse 5 and verse 8. Many other references to the covenant are found, which I'm not going to quote here, but I'll give you the citations. In 16.5, once again, these are all from 3 Nephi 16, verse 5 and verse 11 and verse 12, chapter 20, verse 12 and verse 19, and verse 22, and verse 25, and verse 26, and verse 27, and verse 29, and covenant is mentioned twice in verse 29, again two times in verse 46 of chapter 16, then going to chapter 21 of 3 Nephi, covenant is mentioned twice in verse 4, it's mentioned again in verse 7 and verse 11 of chapter 21, and in verse 22. This totals 20 references in the Savior's teachings to the Nephites. Now, there's not a whole lot of chapters here, right? I mean, he appears in chapter 11 and he talks to them a little bit. And then you've got the quotation of the King James Version of the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 12 through 14. So from 15 through 27 is basically 13 chapters. If you add chapter 11, then you have 14 chapters. But in these 14 chapters, which are not the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus mentions covenant 20 times. I think that's a lot. I think that's significant. These 20 references to the covenant demonstrate, or at least suggest, the thematic quality of the concept. In other words, it's a theme throughout his teachings, covenant. It is a theme that is capped off and tied into scripture by Malachi 3.1, which is quoted at the end of Jesus' ministry. Once again, Malachi 3.1 describes the Lord as the messenger of the covenant. And here comes Jesus to the Nephites, and he's talking about covenants all over the place. So in the same way that the prophecy from Malachi 3.1 about the Lord coming to his temple can be seen as being put in 3 Nephi in order to show its fulfillment in Jesus coming to the temple in Bountiful, even so this same chapter of Malachi, which talks about the Lord being described as the messenger of the covenant, can be seen as being fulfilled 
by Jesus' visit to the Nephites, where he talks about covenant over and over again. He is indeed the messenger of the covenant to the Nephites. Okay, number three, there's more. Number three, destructions accompanying the appearance of the Lord at his temple. Now, we know all about the huge destructions that happened when Jesus came to visit the Nephites. Well, the next verse in Malachi, which is chapter 3, verse 2, and it's cited at 3 Nephi 24 and 2, asks the question, Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? And adds that he is like, or in other words, the Lord when he comes to his temple, is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This indicates an appearance by the Lord to his temple, right? Accompanied by destruction that all do not survive. Third Nephi chapters 8 through 9 describes the destructions immediately preceding Jesus' coming to his temple in Bountiful, which indeed many were not able to. To abide. There are people getting killed all over the place, which seems like a very different Jesus than the one that's described in the New Testament. However, laying that criticism aside for now, and there may be some validity to that criticism, I'm not going to address that at this point, but I can't help but observe the fact that Malachi appears to be making a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, which gets fulfilled in this regard and in other regards in Jesus' appearance to the Nephites, and Malachi is being quoted at the end of Jesus' ministry as if to demonstrate the fact. Number four, treading down the wicked. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, which is quoted in 3 Nephi 24, 2 through 6, it details the calamities to the wicked associated with the Lord's coming, which is picked up in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So the next chapter of Malachi, first three verses, which is quoted in 3 Nephi 25, 1 through 3. Malachi chapter 4 verse 3 is particularly grisly. Here's what that says. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. That's from Malachi 4.3, once again quoted at the end of Jesus' ministry in the Book of Mormon. This saying from Malachi about ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. This saying links backward to 3 Nephi 16.15, where Jesus says, I will suffer my people, O house of Israel, that they shall go through among them and shall tread them down and be trodden underfoot of my people, O house of Israel. It also links backward to 2 Nephi chapter 21, verse 12, where Jesus says that the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles like a young lion, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. We also read of several cities burning to the ground, together with their wicked inhabitants prior to the Savior's coming. These are the cities of Zarahemla, that's 3 Nephi 8 and 8, and its inhabitants 9 and 3, Jacob Bugath, I love that name, Jacob Bugath and its inhabitants 9 and 9, and the cities of Laman, Josh, Gad, and Kishkumen, chapter 9, verse 10. These are the cities that were burned prior to the Savior's coming. The wicked citizens of these cities burned to the ground and were literally reduced to, quote, ashes under the soles of your feet, unquote, as prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, verse 3, and as quoted in 3 Nephi 25, verse 3. But there's more. Number five, turning the hearts. Malachi 4, 6. So we've talked about some of the prophecies in Malachi chapter 3 that's quoted at the end of Jesus' ministry in 3 Nephi. Now we're going to go into the fourth chapter of Malachi, which is also quoted there. Malachi 4, 6, quoted in 3 Nephi 25, 6, contains the familiar prophecy regarding Elijah 
coming to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Once again, although this prophecy is generally seen by modern Mormons as having fulfillment in the end times, the text of the Book of Mormon and 3rd Nephi specifically indicates the fulfillment occurred during Jesus' visit and would likely have been seen this way by the Nephites. Immediately after this verse is quoted, Jesus turns the hearts of the fathers to the children in the following way. When he says, These scriptures, which ye had not with you, the Father commanded that I should give unto you, for it was wisdom in him that they should be given unto future generations. That's from 3 Nephi 26 and 2. And here he's talking about the two chapters from Malachi that he is giving to the Nephites because they couldn't have them because they weren't on the brass plates, right? But he says he gives them these two chapters of Malachi because it was wisdom in God that they should be given unto future generations. And once again, that's 3 Nephi 26 and 2. Now, Mormon seems to understand this. Now, Mormon, I'm talking about the editor of the Book of Mormon. Mormon seems to understand this as he comments that he has written the lesser part of what Jesus taught the Nephites to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people from the Gentiles. And that's 3 Nephi 26 and verse 8. So Mormon, the editor of the Book of Mormon, is talking about writing the lesser part of what Jesus taught the Nephites in 3 Nephi, and for what purpose? So that they can be brought again to this people, i.e. the descendants of the Lamanites, from the Gentiles, which are the early Mormons, those who accept the Book of Mormon, and then go out to preach the gospel to the Lamanites and bring the Book of Mormon with them. In other words, the additional scriptures provided by Jesus, and also his teachings, were recorded with the specific intent that they may be brought again unto their descendants or children, the future generations. Jesus addresses the same theme prior to the quotation from Malachi, telling the Nephites that when these works shall come forth unto your seed, it shall be a sign unto them, that they may know that the work of the Father hath already commenced unto the fulfilling of the covenant which he hath made unto the people who are of the house of Israel. That's 3 Nephi 21 verses 5 and 7. Note that in this passage, the theme of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children from Malachi 4-6 is interwoven with the covenant from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. So if you're not getting the picture right now, Malachi chapter 4 is quoted at the end of Jesus' ministry about turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. And this very prophecy seems to be contextualized and instantiated within the teachings of Jesus to the Nephites where he is telling them that the scriptures he is giving them from Malachi, that the words he is teaching them, that the covenants being made with these people are going to be preserved and given to the descendants of the Lamanites so that they can remember the covenants that were made with their fathers. In other words, Jesus is turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and telling the fathers that in a future day, through the Book of Mormon, the hearts of the children will be turned back to the fathers and they will remember and know about the covenants that their fathers, their ancestors made. Now, once again, I'm not testifying for the truth of any of this. What I'm saying is that there is a literary complexity going on here, which is astonishing to me. This is the second layer of wax on, wax off. The first layer gave it a certain shine. The second application of wax is giving it a more lustrous shine, at least in my opinion, speaking purely from a literary point of view. And it goes on, having turned the hearts of the fathers to the children, Mormon next records how Jesus turned the hearts of the children to the fathers, describing how Jesus did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude, 
And he did loose their tongues, and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things. That's in 3 Nephi chapter 26, verse 4. So here, Jesus is literally having the children teach great things to their fathers, even in real time, and I'll put that in quotes, in real time, while Jesus is among them. A similar scene is described two verses later, which contains the entirety of information given regarding what happened on the third day of Jesus' visit. That's 3 Nephi 26 and 16. In his teachings, Jesus earlier reminds the Nephites that ye are the children of the prophets. That's chapter 20, verse 25. And turns their hearts to their prophet fathers by not only reminding them they are part of the Abrahamic covenant, but also by quoting the three Old Testament chapters at the end of his recorded Nephite ministry. So not only does Jesus turn the hearts of the descendants of the Nephites whom he is addressing to their fathers whom he is addressing, he turns the hearts of the children whom he's addressing to their fathers who are the prophets. When he says, ye are the children of the prophets. So there is turning of hearts of children to fathers and fathers to children all over the place in 3 Nephi. And that is why I think it is that Malachi chapter 4 is reproduced at the end of Jesus's ministry. It is not just filler any more than the Sermon on the Mount was filler at the beginning of his ministry. Oh my gosh, there's more. Number six, tithes and offerings. Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 12, which all good Mormons know because it's always quoted to us in order to get us to pay our tithing, recites the well-known admonition to bring all the tithes and offerings into the Lord's house that there may be meat, i.e. food, that there may be meat there, coupled with the blessings of the windows of heaven opening and plenteous crops so that none need go hungry. This is of interest because some sort of communal law such as that of tithes and offerings was instituted by Jesus among the Nephites. For we read in 4th Nephi that there were no poor among them. It would seem this was important for the Nephites in order to lay the basis for their communal society, which was stable enough to endure for 200 years, and accounts for why the Savior thought it important to have this scripture added to the Nephite records immediately prior to their embarking on this happy two centuries of their history. In other words, those who follow Malachi's economic plan, that of bringing all the tithes and offerings into the Lord's storehouse, are promised that all nations shall call you blessed. That's 3 Nephi 24 and 12. A promise which is fulfilled upon the Nephites for 200 years after Christ's visit. In fact, they are called blessed three times, a symbolically significant number associated with the heavens or the divine. And here's the three times they're called blessed in 4th Nephi, verse 18. There are no chapters in 4th Nephi, it's just one book. No chapters, just verses, 4th Nephi, 18. And how blessed were they? Number one, for the Lord did bless them. Number two, in all their doings, yea, even they were blessed. Number three, and prospered. In a similar fashion, Jesus admonished the Nephites that there should be no disputations or contentions among them. That's 3 Nephi 11.28, a status used three times to describe the Nephite society after he departs. 4 Nephi verse 2 states, there were no contentions and disputations among them. There's one. Verse 13 states, there was no contention among all the people. That's two. And verse 15 says, there was no contention in all the land. There's three uses of the word contention, which seems to mark a fulfillment in the Book of Mormon 
of Jesus' admonition earlier to the Nephites in 3 Nephi 11.28 that there should be no disputations or contentions among them. And now at the end of this analysis, at the end of this second paper on the subject, we leave Malachi having shown, I think pretty conclusively, that Malachi is put at the end of Jesus' ministry and chapters 3 and 4 of Malachi are quoted there in order to show that the prophecies and promises contained in those chapters were fulfilled during Jesus' ministry to the Nephites and fulfilled in the society which was established for 200 years, this wonderful society in which there were no contentions, in which there were no poor among them, that that society was established also in fulfillment of Malachi chapters 3 and 4. But let's go now to the third Old Testament chapter that is quoted at the end of Jesus' ministry. And that is not from Malachi, that is from Isaiah. That is Isaiah chapter 54. Now that's from Deutero Isaiah. Once again, it has no business being in the Book of Mormon. But once again, this is Isaiah 54, and this deals with the gathering and restoration of Israel. The third Old Testament chapter quoted by Jesus at the end of his ministry is Isaiah 54, and that is found in 3 Nephi chapter 22. That's where it's quoted. It is repetitive and poetic, as only Isaiah can be, and maybe Radio Free Mormon. But the primary message is that Israel, though scattered and downtrodden in the past, will ultimately be restored and victorious over their oppressors. Here's a couple of examples. Thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, we read in 3 Nephi chapter 22 and verse 3. That's where it's quoting Isaiah 54. The crux of the entire chapter is synopsized in 3 Nephi 22 verse 7, where it's quoting Isaiah saying, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. The gathering and restoration of Israel, with an emphasis on the Nephites and Lamanites, is a major theme of Jesus' teaching prior to the citation of Isaiah 54 in 3 Nephi 22. And it's the main thrust of chapters 16, 20, and 21 in 3 Nephi. So once again, what I'm suggesting here is that Isaiah 54 is quoted specifically at the end of Jesus' ministry, not just to have filler, not just to have something there, but because the same theme of Isaiah 54, the scattering and gathering of Israel, is also a main theme during Jesus' teachings to the Nephites. Chapter 16 of 3 Nephi. Now, I'm not going to read from these chapters. I've already gone on long enough. You can read these yourself if you want. But perhaps it will be sufficient to make the point to cite here just to the salient portions of the chapter headings of these different chapters, of these three different chapters in 3 Nephi. Chapter 16. In the latter days, the gospel will go to the Gentiles and to the house of Israel. The Lord's people will see eye to eye when he brings Zion. And there, verse 16 of chapter 16, has Jesus promising the Nephites to give unto this people this land for their inheritance. Chapter 20, the remnant of Jacob will come to the knowledge of the Lord their God and will inherit the Americas. Once again, this is just going from the chapter headings. Others of the Lord's people will be gathered to Jerusalem. So there we're talking about the gathering of different peoples to different places. Once again, the theme being the scattering and the gathering. Chapter 21, Israel will be gathered when the Book of Mormon comes forth. Israel will build the new Jerusalem and the last tribes will return. So once again, a gathering not only of Israel, but also a gathering of the lost tribes in the last days. So what is the point here? The point is that in this way, we can see the quotation of Isaiah 54 in 3 Nephi 22 as the capstone of Jesus' lengthy and detailed teachings to the Nephites, 
regarding their gathering and restoration in the last days. Okay, I'm ready for my conclusion. Are you ready? I've actually decided while going through this that this is an awful lot of information too, and I'm not going to go on to the third part of this paper today. I'll save that till tomorrow. Because yesterday, I had thought we would go through all three of these papers, but when I got to the end of the first paper yesterday, I decided that was enough. That was enough information for one podcast, and I left it there. I thought that today I would go through the second two papers, but now I'm through the end of the second paper, and I've decided, hey, that's enough information for me. I don't know about you, but too much information and I overload my circuitry and I can't take in anymore. So I'm going to stop with this second paper today. Tomorrow I'll get to the third paper. Here's the conclusion to the second paper. We have seen that the three Old Testament chapters included by Jesus at the end of his ministry are, like the Sermon on the Mount given at the beginning of his ministry, not mere filler, but are fully contextualized in both the deeds and teachings of Jesus among the Nephites. But whereas the New Testament chapters are primarily brushed forward, quote-unquote, brushed forward into Jesus' subsequent teachings to the Nephites, the Old Testament chapters, which are at the end, are primarily brushed backward onto the prior teachings and deeds of Jesus among the Nephites. Think about this for a minute. I mean, really, this is kind of amazing. It is one thing to incorporate the Sermon on the Mount into subsequent teachings, okay? It is another thing to have deeds and teachings come first, only to be capped and referenced by Old Testament chapters at the end. And as impressive as that is to me personally, it is another thing entirely to do both at the same time, brushing forward from the New Testament chapters at the same time as brushing backward from the Old Testament chapters. And yet, this is precisely what the author of 3rd Nephi does. I don't care who the author of 3rd Nephi is for purposes of this analysis. It can be Jesus, it can be Mormon, it could be Joseph Smith, it could be Joe Schmo. I don't care who it is. The fact is that this is what the author of 3rd Nephi has done. And by doing this, it raises the degree of complexity in the text to a much greater order than either standing alone. In other words, just having the Sermon on the Mount brushed forward into the teachings of Jesus and that standing alone would be one thing. And if you didn't have that and you only had the Old Testament chapters at the end being brushed backward into Jesus' teachings to the Nephites, that would be something standing alone. But to have both of them going on at one and the same time brushing forward and backward is to me a remarkable literary feat. This pattern calls to mind a phrase from Kipling's poem, The Law of the Jungle. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. And there I'm thinking about brushing forward from the New Testament and brushing backward from the Old Testament in 3rd Nephi. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. For the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. And then I give a little teaser for the third paper. In the third and final installment, I plan to show that the text of Jesus' Nephite ministry already remarkably complicated, is made even more complex by the superimposition of a literary structure over the entirety of Jesus' Nephite ministry. And it is within the context of this superimposed literary structure over the entirety that the simultaneous brushing forward and brushing backward takes place. So, with the first paper dealing with the complexity of the Book of Mormon and dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, I have tried to put the first coat of wax on one of Mr. Miyagi's old cars. And now with this second installment, showing the additional literary complexity involving the Old Testament chapters quoted in 3rd Nephi, I have tried to put a second coat 
of wax on Mr. Miyagi's old cars. And tomorrow, with the final installment, I want to put on yet a third coat of wax of complexity on Mr. Miyagi's old cars. And by that point, I hope to have put a brilliant shine, not just on an old car, but on the Book of Mormon, and specifically on the account in the Book of Mormon in 3 Nephi of Jesus' ministry to the Nephites. Wax on, wax off. You know, watching the Karate Kid over the weekend really reminded me about my two years in Japan, and it brought back a lot of fond memories. There was a song by a Japanese singer that became a hit song in the United States back in the early 60s, I think it was. It was called Sukiyaki, if memory serves. Now, Sukiyaki, or Skiyaki, as the Japanese would say, has nothing to do with the song, but the song itself was sung in Japanese, and that's why it's really remarkable that it went to number one in the United States. It's a very famous tune and a famous song, and after that, several other American artists covered that song, but with lyrics that were in English. And the lyrics themselves are not a translation of the Japanese from the original song. They're just original lyrics put to the same tune as the original song. The name the song came to be known by in English is You Took Your Love Away From Me. It was covered by Taste of Honey in 1980. That's the disco version. I will not be playing that one for you. The version I'm going to play for you was done by 4PM and it was released in 1995. It is one of the most hauntingly beautiful songs I have ever heard in my life. I hope you enjoy it and I hope you enjoyed tonight's podcast. I hope that if nothing else, it is helping you get through your days of sheltering at home during the coronavirus. And I will tell you that for me personally, it helps me appreciate the complexity of the Book of Mormon even more. Once again, this is all original research by yours truly, Radio Free Mormon. It has never been published. And after going over it again for this podcast, I think I may have to submit it somewhere to see if anybody is interested in publishing this work. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the Book of Mormon is Shakespeare, but on the other hand, it's not Dick and Jane either. There are complexities in the Book of Mormon that I had never seen before I did this study, and the more I study it, the more complexity I find. There are complexities within complexities, circles within circles, and layers upon layers. So, until next time, remember... Wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water. Stay away from crowds. Maintain good social distancing of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Untouchable memories seem to keep haunting me. Another love so true That once turned all my gray skies blue But you disappeared Now my eyes are filled with tears And I'm wishing you were here with me Soaked with love All my thoughts of you Now that you're gone I just don't know to do If only you were here You'd wash away my tears The sun would shine And once again You'd be mine, oh my But in reality You and I will never be Cause you took
Take your love away from 